morning, everybody. Good to see everybody. Summer's obviously done. Um, we're going to need some of you guys maybe to uh, think about moving to 11 o'clock or 5 o'clock. Um, we love stocking, and I, I think you know that if you've been coming here. Um, it's such a privilege and an honor for us to be involved in our neighborhood, involved in that school. Uh, I've had the personal joy of mentoring uh, students at uh, Stocking and then at Westwood now, and I know that the people that do this, like we don't really give that much, we get 10 times more. Um, and so it'd be fun to send an army of crossroads into that neighborhood, into that school, which I see us doing, really excited about that. Um, I'm gonna read something that is actually from the elders to our church, uh, of which I am an elder representing them. And it has to do with our church plant, TMC. We feel at this time that it is important that we communicate uh, where we are. Uh, we, we parented this church, we birthed it. Um, it's, it's like a child to us. And uh, in light of that, let me read this. Approximately three years ago, God led Crossroads to plant a church. After years of listening to God and dreaming dreams, we felt God's strong call to be a church planting church. Church planting is an expression of our core values, the gospel, mission, and discipleship. Just as disciples birth disciples, we believe churches ought to birth churches. And Crossroads is a church plant. So about two Years ago, a leadership team was formed, including Brad Claver and Ken Lucas, later Bree Pate, the Vanervaldes, and Nate Sylvie were added to this team. We presented this opportunity to you, our people, uh, several times. We asked you to pray and consider if this church plant, TMC, was what God would have for you, to join this new community, to roll up your sleeves, to be a part of this new kingdom work. Out of this call, a church began to incubate in the upper room, here on Sunday mornings, several months later, TMC was launched with great anticipation, high hopes, kingdom dreams on the Grand Valley campus here in downtown Grand Rapids. However, because of many troubling events in the leadership that have transpired over the summer, today I am sad to say that we no longer are in a space where we can support or recommend your participation in the community at TMC. Of the original team that responded to the call and left our body to go to Trinity, including their elders and their latest hire, Matt Lane, all except for Ken Lucas, have either resigned or been terminated. We reached out to TMC and we offered to walk alongside them in their struggles. That's <laughs> what a parent does. And over the course of the past two months and us reaching out to them, the clear response to our elder board received from those now leading TMC was that TMC's attorney had determined Crossroads has no legal standing in TMC's affairs and that we should not communicate with Trinity attendees. We recognize that there are many who want to pray and seek God together, who are hurting right now, who need support, who have questions and would want more details this is not the time and place for that. However, uh, we are 
putting together a time scheduled for Wednesday, September 18 at 7 p.m. in the upper room with this goal, that we can humbly walk together, offer transparency, and seek God for healing. We'll also have some written information available at that time to address many of the questions we've seen so far. This next paragraph is just going to be hard for me to read. Um, my heart grieves over this situation. Like a parent has grief for their child. And I know that there are even some right now in this room that we called for you to go to be a part of this. And you are here today. And you went with high hopes of the kingdom. You experienced new friendships, new fellowships, and I know that you must be grieving, confused, angry, hurt. So hear me say this. We are sorry. As brothers in Christ, we readily admit that we made mistakes in this process. And we want you to feel at home at crossroads. I mean, you never left. You've always been a part of crossroads. It's been our, our, our heart and our mission like chop off our arm and, and plan it. Um, so you're a part of us. Um, we want you to feel home at Crossroads. Uh, trust me, we may have changed a little since you left. You've probably changed a little, but the kingdom of heaven is not static. It's, it's a dynamic reality. Whatever we can do to facilitate healing and restoration, to erase confusion and bring clarity, Crossroads wants to do that. We also want to say that as a church, we confidently believe that God is on the throne. We believe that all those events, some of them may be a surprise to us, they are not a surprise to God. We believe that God has a plan, a big plan for the church in Grand Rapids, of which we get to be a part. And we believe that the passion of making disciples and furthering the church, God's bride, does not waver or die due to broken situations. And we believe that he is the healer and the restorer who brings beauty out of ashes and who bring dry bones to life. Therefore, we do not lose hope, but we press on. We press into him and seek his face as an elder board and as a church family. Let me just, again, highlight that this is it's devastating. Um, and again, this, this falls in, in, into the parent bucket for us, for me. Um, these are dreams that we had going already, already back five years ago. This church emerged from us. We birthed it. And anyone who's a parent knows, like, no one has to tell a parent to love their kid. No one has to tell a parent that that how badly they want their kid to make it. And that hasn't changed one bit. We love TMC. And as much as when we birthed this thing, probably even more today, we want to see this church become all that it can be. Would you please pray for that church? And then for those who are here and hurting, um, and for all of us, this is an opportunity for good or evil. Let's make this an opportunity to become like Christ. 
talk like him, to love like him, to forgive like him, to walk like him. And that's a good segue into where we're going this morning. With that being said, um, afterward, um, I don't know if there are any elders in the room right now if you have questions. Uh, this is mainly for the TMC people um, uh, who might be here um, and have questions. Would the elders please stand so they can know who to talk to? Right here, right here, uh, right back there, right here. These guys have literally, I mean, I wish I could say to them the checks in the mail for the countless hours that they have spent. Uh, pastoring crossroads, and then also pastoring our child. Thank you, guys. All right. God, we right now lift up TMC. And God, we, uh, we pray the prayer that we learned this summer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us and give to them your daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We're not giving up. (laughs) All right. God uh, led me to another theme verse this year, <laughs> and uh, it builds on last year's theme verse. Anybody remember last year's theme verse? Come on now, let's go. Anybody at least remember where it's found? First Peter. First Peter 2, verse 9. Does anybody right now want to just stand up and just belt it out? Come on, you want it. Let's go, man. <laughs> this, get, stand up. You can do this. Right. You're a chosen people. No, nope, you're right. A chosen people. A holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who brought you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Okay, yeah. I just played golf with this guy, too, and he can attest. I beat him. I beat him pretty good. <laughs> Sorry, Derek. So last year's verse, we just, and we stayed on it. I mean, we pushed this in. You, you are a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. That answers a question we like to ask around here a lot. Like, who are you? Who are we? And then the second part of that question is, what are we doing here? We're here to declare the praises of God who brought us out of darkness and into his light. Now, this year's verse is going to build on that, and it's going to tell us how, how we do that. How we, how we walk into that, live that out, and it's 1 John 2, verse 6, which says, if anyone claims to be in Christ, he or she must walk as Jesus walked. Which means our walk, how we live, absolutely matters. It's where the rubber meets the road. And hear this rightly, Jesus didn't come to the world to just save us. As great as that is, um, I mean, it's incredible. But he also came to the world to 
Show us how to walk. To show us God's path and how to walk that path. In fact, that is the very meaning of a disciple. A disciple is someone who finds God's path and walks it, walks it like Jesus. And if you want to know how Jesus walked on this earth, how he lived, because a lot of people are talking about that today, we got to go to the text. Gospel is a great place to start, but if you really want to dial in, the Sermon on the Mount. Which is why this summer, we looked at the beginning of the sermon, the Beatitudes, where Jesus describes the people of the kingdom, what they're like, the characteristics. Later, or last week, if some of you were here, we had a blast last week, by the way. If you weren't here, you missed out. Um, but we looked at the mission of, his, uh, of Jesus' kingdom, uh, which is not just Jesus calling us to be salt and light, but to be the salt of the whole earth and the light of the whole world. Now we're going to look at the rest of the sermon, which flushes out exactly how we are to be just that, to fulfill this massive calling of being the salt of the earth, the light of the world, which is really how we are to live, how we are to walk as Jesus walked. We ready for this? All right, let's go. Let's go to Matthew 5. And we love to stand for the reading of God's word, so if that's something that you can do, let's do that. Picking up on verse 17, we're getting now into this sermon. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Amen. Truly, truly, I tell you, unless, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, nor the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the rabbis, the Torah teachers, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. You can be seated. And here's my first question. In light of looking at this sermon already for much of the summer, that when we get to this part, why would Jesus feel the need at this point to say, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Law and the prophets is their phrase, expression for saying Bible or God's word or the scriptures, which they called Torah. Don't think that I came to abolish the Bible, God's word. Why did Jesus feel the need to say this? Well, I was thinking about that. A first century Jew could, first of all, could not imagine a righteousness apart from the scriptures. It was the source of their identity. It was their very life. 
It was the holy of holies. It was their way into God, the way to become like God. Think about how Jesus starts this sermon. With the Beatitudes. Where he describes the characteristics of, of the people that belong to the kingdom of God. Now, as, as much as, as those characteristics were a shock to us, they were every bit that shock to the people of his day. But maybe in another way. Because to a first century Jew, they would be wondering, wait a second, why didn't Jesus just say, blessed are the Jews, the people that God chose, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or blessed are those who love the word of God, who hide that word in their heart, who obey it with all their soul, for they shall inherit the earth, they shall see God, they shall be called sons of God. Jesus didn't say that. It's almost like Jesus came up with a whole new criteria to describe those who belong to God. So at this point in the sermon, people might be thinking, Jesus is going around the Torah. He's doing away with God's word. It's almost like he's creating a new religion. Which is what so many Christians today think. And we just think, Jesus came to do away with the Torah. Because to us, so much of it is law. And to us, law is something that's bad and broken. It didn't work. Really? Listen, if Jesus came to do away with law, then why in this text does he say two times, I did not come to abolish the law. And then he even doubles down on that statement by saying what he says in verse 18 and 19, for truly I tell you, unless until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the smallest pen stroke will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of, the, one of these commandments will be called least in my kingdom. Let me show you this from Exodus 31, verse 18. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Jesus wrote the law. Which is why the Apostle Paul says about the law, the law is good, it's righteous, it's holy. Listen, it's not the law that's bad and broken. We are what's bad and broken. But because no one wants to feel bad and broken today, we say, I'm not broken, the law's broken. I mean, think about our culture today in its attempt to not feel bad and broken, which it feels ironically at its core, we're just tossing out laws left and right. Saying, I'm not broken, it's the law that's broken. And here's the problem with this, especially when it comes to God's law, because that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about human laws. We're talking about God's law here, is God made us. 
God designed us. And more than just make us like he made everything else, with us, it's something uniquely special. He made us to be like him. He made us in his image. He made us in his likeness. Which then begs the question, well, what is God like? Well, if you want to know what what, what God is like, his, his character, his heart, if you want a window into God, Read the law. The law is a window into his, his character. It's a window into his, into his heart. It's a window into who he is. The, the, the reason why God would say, do not commit adultery is because God would never commit adultery. He is utterly faithful. He is, he is faithful to every promise he ever made. The reason he says, tell the truth, is because God would never lie. The reason why God calls us to to love and not just love the people that are easy to love, but even love our worst enemies to forgive those who have hurt us is because that's who God is. God's heart loves. God's heart forgives. See, this is what happens when we actually break the law. We are violating the way that God designed us. God did not design us to kill. He didn't design us uh, to tell lies. He didn't design us to be jealous of our neighbor's house. And here's what happens when we go against God's design. There's going to be a breakdown. Think about your car. If you violate the design of your car, No, I'm not going to tell that illustration. That would get me in trouble. Well, one of my kids. Um, (laughs) No, not going there. However, if you forget to change the oil for too long, (laughs) the engine will break down. I promise. (laughs) Or or, uh, apply this to to the design of our bodies. I mean, you eat sugar, fast food every day. Tell me how that's going to go. Just look around, there's breakdown everywhere. There's breakdown in marriages, there's breakdown in families, there's breakdown in our neighborhoods, there's breakdown in schools, there's breakdown in our cities, our nation, our our world. It's because God designed us in a certain way. We've been made in his image, and when we fail to adhere to his law, we are violating the very essence of who God made us to be, which is why a Jew would never refer to their Bible as, as, as law. It's Torah. Torah simply means instruction. To them, it's like God gave us an owner's manual on what it means to be a human, on, on how to be a human, on, on how to be a human that looks like God. Listen to what it says in, in Deuteronomy 32. It's right before they're about to enter the promised land, leave the desert, enter the promised land. Moses speaking the words of God. Take to heart all the words that I have solemnly declared to you this day so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law, this instruction. They're not just idle words for you. They are your life. 
Jesus loves us way too much to say the law is now obsolete. Which is why two times he says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Now these terms, abolish and fulfill, are actually technical terms in Jesus' day. They're rabbinical idioms. So when one rabbi felt another rabbi uh, misinterpreted a passage of scripture, he would simply say, you're abolishing the law. You're misinterpreting it. Which in essence then was destroying it. Because right now, if I, if I told everyone to cheat on their taxes this year so you could give that money to Crossroads, um, I would be doing just that. I would be abolishing the law because I'd be misinterpreting it. The way you then fulfill Torah or establish it was to properly interpret it because for the word of God to get fleshed into our lives and fleshed out of our lives, for us to actually walk it out, we first need to know what it means. And everybody knows that this can be a confusing book in places. But listen to what even the rabbis to this day believe about Messiah. When the Messiah comes, he will not only correctly interpret all the problematic verses of Scripture, he will also correctly interpret all the individual words of each verse. And when Messiah comes, he will also correctly interpret all the individual letters of each word. In fact, when Messiah comes, he will also even interpret all the white spaces between the letters and the words. Now think about what we have in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus fulfilling this. He is correctly interpreting. He's giving Torah its full meaning, every jot and tittle. Let's think about this. Jesus is the very word of God. He is the word made flesh. He is Torah fleshed out. He wrote the law with his very finger. His life is the very interpretation of Torah. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, and of course in other places in the gospel, he is teaching us how to walk it out, how God's law gets fleshed into us and how it is to get fleshed out of us. That's why I want to exhort everyone right now. You can take this or leave it. But I want a church that knows this sermon. That maybe even memorizes it. That we get this in our heart because if you want to know how Jesus walked and, and, and how he called his disciples to walk, if you want to know what, what, what a, a Christian is to look like, it's in this sermon. And I can guarantee you that as we push into this sermon, you are going to feel its beauty. There are going to be so many times when, when, when your heart is just going to say, yes, I know this is how I'm supposed to live, and I want others to live this way. In fact, if we would all live this way, it would literally be a heaven on earth. And that's the point. This is how we bring heaven to earth. This is how heaven is, is embodied in us and, and how heaven is unleashed through us upon the earth. That's how important this is. 
If anyone is in Christ, he'll walk as Jesus walked. But listen, at the same time that, that this sermon is going to inspire you, it's also going to shame you. I mean, it's already shamed me this morning. When I go to verse 20, and he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, to Jesus' original audience, this would have horrified them. Because the Pharisees devoted their whole life to this book, to knowing it, memorizing it. Not just so they could know it, so they could walk it out, teach it, push it into other people, have them teach them how to walk it out. Remember what Paul said? He said, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. He says, as to the Torah, I was perfect. That's all Pharisee, that, 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 that was their goal. But see, now we are stepping away from the dangers of abolishing Torah into the dangers of keeping Torah. Because law keeping can quickly make us into a Pharisee and I think for us to really understand what Jesus is saying here when he says that your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, we should probably know what a Pharisee was in Jesus' day. And I think many of us right now have some notion of a Pharisee, and, and, and that notion is probably a very negative one. I mean, to many of us, a Pharisee is just a hypocrite, a, a judgmental phony. Let me tell you what, what the first century Jewish historian Josephus tells us the Pharisees were. He, he says they were easily the most respected people of that time. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, the two people that were at the cross who buried Jesus' body, they were both Pharisees. The apostle Paul, even at the end of his life, is not saying, yeah, I once was a Pharisee. He's still saying, yeah, I'm, I am a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were, were birthed out of this intense, intense culture war that began already before Jesus. It's when the Greeks and the Romans took over that part of the world. The Greeks and especially the Romans sought to indoctrinate that, that world into its culture and worldview. And without being overly sim simplistic, but I have to be right now uh, because we can't spend too much time on this, um, that worldview was all about the individual what an individual can accomplish, how good an individual can look, what, what an individual can, can achieve. It, it's, a, it's a worldview that produced a culture that literally became obsessed with the human body, with pleasure, sex, money, sport, fame, power. <laughs> I think we know that culture quite well. I mean, it, it became obsessed with self. This flew in the face of first century Judea, Judaism, which then produced a massive culture war. And it's out of this culture war that the Pharisees were birthed. In fact, the word Pharisee literally means to separate. These are the separate ones because it's, it's out of their attempt to be utterly distinct from the world around them, they separated themselves from that world. 
And their whole goal was purity, and, and, and not just sexual purity, certainly it, it included that, but it was purity in every walk of life. That's why they said, don't touch that, don't taste that, uh, don't eat this, don't go to that place, don't hang out with those kind of people, because it was purity through separation. And the reason why you would separate yourselves from the world, why you would forsake the world around you was so that you could be 100% devoted to God. And the way a Pharisee was 100% devoted to God is, is it, it, was, it was total devotion to God's word. To knowing it, to hiding it in their heart so they could walk it out. And if you want the equivalent of what a Pharisee might look like in, in, in our day, it would be someone who would be very respected in our community, someone who lives a really good life, they're committed to church, maybe a ministry leader, uh, someone who has a rich prayer life, makes the Bible the huge priority that it needs to be, they give lots of money to the poor because uh, Pharisees were all about social justice. It's a Pharisee. And here's what I want you to know. The Pharisees emerged out of this culture war as a force. Such a force that they became a threat to the powers that be that just before the time of Jesus, those powers rounded up 800 Pharisees and crucified them, hung them on crosses for their families to watch them die as these crosses lined the streets. This is why Josephus says that the Pharisees were easily the most respected and honored people of Jesus' day. So when Jesus says your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees, like even now, is anyone feeling good? Who's thinking I can do this? See, if that's you right now, I say beware. Because here's where a Pharisee got the train off the tracks. They looked at Torah, and they said, yep, I can do that, easy. I'm good. I'm spiritual. I got this. And then their life became all about proving this to themselves and to, to others, that they were spiritually superior to everyone else. And quickly, their relationship with God became all about performance, all about these externals, and it bypassed the heart, and it produced this outside-in righteousness. It was this, hey, look at me. Look at how I pray. Look at how I fast. Look at how I give to the poor. And it became all about how, how, how they looked. And in the end, their serving was to serve themselves. Even their worship was to worship themselves. Which is why at the end of this sermon, and I don't want to give you too much now because we're going to get there, but, but um, Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with two gates, two roads, two trees, two houses. And I always thought that Jesus is laying out two kinds of people here, one a righteous person and one a wicked person, but that's not what Jesus is laying out. He's essentially saying there's two ways to be righteous. There's two ways to pray. There are two ways to give. 
There's two ways to seek God. One is showy, pretentious, all about me kind of righteousness, outside in righteousness, obsessed with appearance, performance. The other is a righteousness of the heart, inside out righteousness. Because God doesn't look at the appearance. God says, I look right at the heart. That's why Jesus is going to say, you've heard it was said this, don't do this. But I say, don't you kill with your heart. It's said, do not commit adultery. I say, don't do it with your heart. And that showy, pretentious, self-serving righteousness is utterly nauseating to God. He detests it. And sadly, today our churches are filled with it. Because it's so easy to slip into this. Can I ask, are you a Pharisee? Are you concerned with your appearance? Your image? Are you always trying to prove to yourself and to others that, that, that you're spiritual and that you're good? Or when you fail and make a mistake, are you embarrassed and you try to hide it? Can you talk about your mistakes? Are you critical? Are you judgmental of those who do fail? Do you look down on anyone right now? Do you think you're better right now than anyone? Those are the characteristics of a Pharisee. Now, I could illustrate this, but I don't have to because Jesus does. He tells stories about this a lot. One of the most succinct stories he tells about this is a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. He starts it by saying two men, two men went to temple service to worship. One was a wicked man. Everyone knew it. One was a righteous man. Everyone thought it. And here's the deal. The high point in, in, in a Jewish worship service in a temple service in the first century is, is, is when it gets to that point when, when, when that lamb is offered, its throat is slit, its blood is collected, it's thrown on the altar. The priest uh, then takes and puts incense and the smoke rises. And, and, and in that moment, that, that lamb, as it's made atonement, all of a sudden, everyone breaks out into prayer. And here's this Pharisee. And he starts by talking about his own righteousness and then his superiority to other people. God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy over there. And look at me, God, how I give and how I fast two times a week. He's so overcome with his own righteousness that he is oblivious to his desperate need for atonement. I think we all know right now the dangers of being a sinner, but how many of us right now know the dangers of being a righteous person? This danger is so subtle, but it's so deadly. The moment that we believe that we can become acceptable to God because of anything that we do or perform, we've missed it. 
Then Jesus says this tax collector, in fact, he says he stands afar off. He probably just slipped in the back row somewhere. But at the sight of that lamb being offered, its blood poured out, this so moves him that he beats his breast. In, in, in the ancient world, the only time people would beat their breasts is when they were in utter anguish. And this man is in utter anguish over what? His sin. And then he prays from his heart, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Like that's not even the, the, the best translation of what he prayed. Most literally what he prays is, God, would you make atonement for me? What's so powerful t- t- to me is, is um, his heart as, as he takes in this lamb being sacrificed, uh, which is God's picture to him that, that God will make atonement for him, that God will cover his sins and make him clean, that he is so overcome with almost like God with that... Would that be for me too? Could you forgive me? God, would you have mercy on me? When is the last time with an ache in your gut, tears in your eyes, you prayed this way? You know what the Pharisee lacks? The Beatitudes. They do so much for God, but they're devoid of everything in the Beatitudes. Rather than coming to God poor, they come to God rich. Look at me, God. Look how good I am. Look how spiritual I am. Rather than coming to God in meekness, they're full of spiritual pride. Rather than mourning over their broken, condition, their sin, they approach God with this smug, super spiritual, I'm perfectly okay, I'm just fine. Rather than hungering for the one who can make him righteous, they hunger to be the one who is righteous. And rather than offering grace and mercy to others, all they do is judge everything around them with a critical attitude. And here's this tax collector. He's oozing the Beatitudes. He has them in spades. And the Beatitudes don't replace the law, but they get at the heart because the heart is what God looks at. And that's why Jesus says this one The task collector, he got the acceptance of God. And more shocking to his audience, Jesus says, rather than this one, the Pharisee. This is some incredibly scary stuff that we've stepped into. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If anyone is in Christ, he or she must walk as Jesus walked. Let's pray.
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Bless you, God. May it be. Thank you.